I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us here at Merge in downtown Iowa City. For those of you watching our live stream on Facebook or listening to the podcast, thank you for joining us. Russia, as we know, is very much in the news these days, and we'll spend part of our program discussing its present role on the world stage. But first, we want to step back in the complicated history of Russia's last century to get a better understanding of how Tsarist Russia, ruled for over 300 years by the Romanov dynasty, became the world's first communist state. We're fortunate to have Michael Smolik from the University of Iowa Department of History in the first part of our program. Uh, Michael teaches courses on the Russian Revolution, so Michael, we're going to let you take it away, set the scene for us. What was happening in the late 19th century and the early 20th century that <laughs> took us to this October 1917 revolution? Well, it's not something I think I can cover in an entire semester, <laughs> so it's kind of hard to cover in 25 minutes, but... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let me start by just kind of situating where we were 100 years ago today. Today would have been on the uh, Julian calendar, October 19th, uh, 1917, 100 years ago. Uh, obviously, November 1st on the Gregorian calendar. And um, we were about two days away from a uh, resolution uh, which Trotsky wrote uh, for the Military Revolutionary Committee um, that basically was a declaration that the provisional government of Russia no longer held power and that the, the uh, the uh, uh, Petrograd Soviet was the you know absolute power in the country, and then four days later, you know we have the storming of the Winter Palace and the Bolsheviks essentially assuming power at that point. So that's where we were a hundred years ago, you know today. Um, so one of the things in teaching this class that um, really stands out to me is is, um, uh, and I think it's really particularly important for Americans to try to wrap our heads around the level of violence that was going on in Russia in the 50 years leading up to the Russian Revolution. Um, you had a peasant-based movement called the Narodniks. Um, you had young revolutionaries. They called themselves nihilists. Um, they were engaged in terrorist campaigns. Even women were recruited to become terrorists. Uh, they were, in a sense, considered sort of heroes of the people if they were you know, <laughs> attacked public officials. Um, of course, the regime itself was very brutal. Russia was a, uh, one of the last uh, states in Eastern Europe to abolish serfdom. So it was not until 1861 when the Tsar uh, finally, after many, many, you know, cent- a century or more of discussing the idea of abolishing serfdom, em- issued the Emancipation Edict in which serfs in Russia were um, you know, declared no longer serfs. Um, uh, it, it happens to be the same decade of the Civil War in the United States, the end of slavery, so there was some you know, correlation there. Um, and... Sadly, what happens then is that um, the government imposes you know, huge indemnities on the peasants. So the poorest peasants, uh, they remain part of a, a village commune, a collective known as the Mir. Um, and they were given small plots of land, but it wasn't enough land to pay the taxes that they were expected to pay the government. So if you were an extremely poor peasant, you were, you were still in this situation of grinding poverty. And you know, imagine being a peasant, you know, self-subsistent producer, uh, having to pay these huge taxes, you've been told you liberated, um, but now you know you're suffering the Russian winters. Um, you can imagine the sort of you know hardships that that were being endured. So it was out of that that eventually a party known as the Socialist Revolutionary Party emerged, um, and then alongside them uh, uh, the Social Democratic Party emerges in the early 20th century. These two major parties uh, in 1903 at a conference in London. And Brussels, um, the Social Democratic Party splits. This is a Marxist party, uh, so Marxist ideas are now, you know, well established in Russia. Um, and there's this idea of organizing the proletariat, the working class, which is a small but rapidly growing class in Russia. 
um, and it's considered that they will lead the revolution. <clears throat> so um, uh, two years later is 1905, and um, this is coming at, on the end of uh, a war uh, with Japan, which is a humiliation, um, which uh, you know serves to further discredit the Tsar's regime. Uh, and so um, uh, there's a huge demonstration for bread in St. Petersburg. It's met with gunfire. Hundreds of people perish. Uh, and then a general strike is called. And what this results in is uh, concessions by the Tsar that he didn't want to make, <laughs> um, uh, granting greater civil liberties and uh, creation of a Duma, a parliamentary system in, in Russia. Um, so <laughs> we jump ahead then to 1912, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks uh, who had separated in 1903, uh, formally split. And um, uh, we get to February 1917 uh, in the midst of this uh, First World War. So I think, you know, one has to try to really wrap your head around the, you know, Russia during the First World War. Um, you still have, you know, this enormous con discontent among the peasantry. Uh, you have these socialist ideas uh, percolating throughout the working class and among peasants. Um, you have a regime that's been trying to sort of push back the, the, the reforms that it granted. Um, and meanwhile, it's fighting a war with Germany, which it's losing. Uh, and, um, you know, in the First World War, you'd have two million Russian soldiers die and up to as many as two million civilians dying as well. Um, so what you have um, in 1917 in, in the cities in Russia is extreme hardship, uh, inflation, uh, Food, food shortages, um, and a situation among the soldiery where, where, you know, like in other countries during the First World War, um, there's an increasing sense of futility. You know, why are we fighting this war? Why are we going off to die in large numbers? What are we fighting for? Um, uh, in France, you know, soldiers in First World War were being sent to the front, and, and at periods of the war, they would, they would uh, as they were marching off, they would bleat like sheep to mock their commanders because they were saying, we're just being sent to the slaughter. Um, so, um, it's in this context that we have, first of all, the February Revolution of 1917. Uh, there was a strike at the Pudilov uh, uh, factory in, uh, in what was then called Petrograd. Um, and then a group of women organized a bread march uh, demanding bread, and, um, and the repression of that um, protest touched off a wave of strikes that led to what was called the February Revolution um, and uh, the Tsar's abdication on March 2nd. Uh, 1917. So what it results then is you have a provisional government. Um, uh, you have a committee of the Duma, sort of a self-appointed committee, sort of, sort of, you know, claiming the mantle of state power. But at the same time, during this period, something rather amazing has been happening, and that is, you know, in the in the kind of vacuum of power in the country, um, ordinary workers and peasants and soldiers have been organizing sort of democratic, you know, uh, participatory democracy councils known as Soviets, and um, these are, you know, organized throughout the country. Around this time, in 1917, a new Soviet emerges in Petrograd, known as the Petrograd Soviet, and essentially becomes the focal point of this movement of Soviets. And um, uh, it's well understood at this point that that's where the kind of strength, the allegiance, and the legitimacy uh, um, of the eyes of the population lies. However, there's a power-sharing agreement made between the... Um, uh, uh, Duma Committee and the Petrograd Soviet, and that's the provisional government. So we jump ahead to July of 1917, and um, a, a strike uh, by an artillery regiment uh, leads to another massacre 
you know, uh, response uh, with, with, with force by uh, soldiers of the government um, and touches off a wave of indignation. But uh, the Bolshevik Party, which has really been a minority party at this point, goes through a period after this because they're accused of in, in, um, uh, instigating this, this uh, uprising, uh, which they deny. And uh, at the same time, there's the accusation that the Bolsheviks um, are uh, serving as agents of the Russian government. It, there's some documents that show that they've accepted some money from the Russian government. Other parties have done so as well. Uh, and, of course, we know that Lenin had come back to Russia in April on a sealed train from Switzerland coming through Germany um, by some kind of arrangement with the German government. So at that point in July uh, is the low point for the Bolsheviks. They're seen as, you know, potential German agents. There's newspaper cartoons calling for Lenin to be hanged. Um, Lenin, of course, has gone into hiding. Uh, other leaders, Trotsky and Kamenev, are arrested. Um, so many of the Bolshevik leaders of this period are in, are in prison. Um, then what happens in August is uh, a very complicated affair known as the Kornilov Affair. Um, uh, in July, uh, Alexander Kerensky, who is a socialist and is a member of both of the Duma Committee and of the Petrograd Soviet, uh, comes to power as the new prime minister. And he appoints uh, General Kornilov, who's uh, well known to have supported and pushed for um, uh, summary executions on the battlefield. That is, when soldiers um, desert and, and Russia was suffering huge numbers of desertions during the war, they would just be shot on site for desertion. Uh, obviously, this is extremely un unpopular uh, among the general population. But Kornilov um, and Kerensky uh, scheme to uh, send, uh, you know, bring troops back from the front and send other detachments of troops to Petrograd to deal with the Petrograd Soviets and all these so socialist revolutionaries and you know, suppress the whole revolution. Uh, in the middle of the you know, affairs, as things get going, Kerensky, um, I, I, you know, there's different interpretations of this. What I think probably happened is that Kerensky learned of plans that he would be not only deposed but executed once the affair was over. So he switches sides in the middle of it. And he throws his weight behind the revolutionaries. And so what the revolutionaries are able to do in Petrograd is to organize, because now um, the socialists, particularly the Bolsheviks, have um, been organizing through uh, Soviet councils within the military, uh, as well as in you know, uh, um, train stations and different public services. Uh, and they're able to shut down the coup before it happens effectively. There's relatively little fighting that happens, and the troops that are sent there mostly are not able to get there. Well, Kerensky, having initially supported this, is now seen as the enemy of the revolution by all of these revolutionaries in, in, in Petrograd. And the Bolsheviks go from, in July, being at their low point to all of a sudden being the rising star because they're the ones who had worked most closely with uh, soldiers uh, in you know, the, the, the Soviet councils within the military and in the factories and so on. Um, so uh, that then brings us to September. And um, in the events of September, um, uh, Lenin is still in hiding. He, he switches his position. He had been uh, saying that it was premature to have a revolution a few months earlier. Now he's suddenly calling for a, an insurrection immediately. He sees the opportunity is ripe. The Bolshevik Central Committee actually doesn't agree with him, and they actually don't even publish his papers. Um, so uh, one of the things that tells us is that um, the Bolsheviks were not a monolithic party. There was a lot of internal dissension. Uh, there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of fluidity to this party during this period. Um, so uh, we have to kind of fast forward into October. <coughs> um, 
what precipitates the October Revolution of October 24th and 25th, uh, again on the Julian calendar, uh, 1917, uh, is um, a move by Kerensky to once again, you know, go in and send soldiers in to suppress the revolutionaries. Because by now there is kind of a, the papers are full of excitement. They realize that um, an insurrection is coming. The Bolsheviks are publicly denying that anything's happening, but behind the scenes, Lenin in particular is pushing for it. There's debates, um, and they're trying to seize the opportunity. Um, so, um, so the Bolsheviks kind of wait for that to happen, but once it comes out that Kerensky is ready to start rearresting top leadership of the Bolsheviks, um, uh, the wheels kick into gear once again. And so when the troops, once again, when the troops are sent to, you know, for this um, counter-coup, this counter-revolution, they're basically unable to get to Petrograd. Um, and um, um, uh, so what's left with, you know, what Kerensky's left with is a very small force, one of which is a b- women's battalion uh, guarding the Winter Palace. Uh, and on the night of October 24th to 25th, um, uh, the Bolsheviks are able to organize the takeover of all the public facilities, the telegraphs, the telephones, the railway stations, until by the morning of the 25th, they basically got control of the city. Um, and the last thing, and there's some long delays, into late into the night of the 25th is to um, wage a siege on the Winter Palace and, um, and the Bolsheviks come to power. One of the key things to understand about all this, though, is, is about public perceptions. You know, who was supporting what? <laughs> um, so there's this slogan, all power to the Soviets, um, that has been a popular slogan, slogan amongst all the socialist parties for a long time, uh, that, you know, since the Soviets began forming. Uh, and there's a period in which the Bolsheviks, um, Lenin in particular, um, were saying, you know, we don't support the slogan anymore. We should, we should not support the slogan. And what he meant by that is he did, he did not want to work with the other socialist parties. He wanted the Bolsheviks. He saw the Bolsheviks as the only party that was sort of legitimate, that was really of and by and for the working class, uh, and, the, and of course, you know, presumably the peasants as well. And um, uh, so um, as events unfolded into, into the events of October 24th and 25th, however, an opportunity opened up that I don't think Lenin perce- you know, perceived in advance, and that is that in preparing the city for the defense of Petrograd against um, First of all, the German advance, because the Germans have now taken Riga, they've taken islands, uh, they've basically got the, the, the um, uh, Russian fleet bottled up in the Gulf of Finland. Uh, and so there's the sense that um, the Germans might take uh, Petrograd, also that Kerensky might allow the Germans to take Petrograd to, to have the Germans deal with the socialists, the revolutionaries. Um, so, they're, so the soldiers uh, who are being prepared for the defense are um, seeing this as you know defending Petrograd from outside and potential internal enemies, um, but but also you know the the provisional government of the uh, Kerensky's regime is 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 um, 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 seen as a potential threat. Uh, at one point, the, the Kerensky regime or a member of the pre-parliament is calling for the soldiers also to be prepared for an insurrection. So the soldiers are being you know uh, they've got the Germans, they've got the provisional government, and they've got the Bolsheviks as all potential threats. Uh, at any rate, the Petrograd Soviet is the one that organized something called the Military Revolutionary Committee. And um, it's not designed specifically to stage a Bolshevik insurrection. But by now, the Bolsheviks are nearing a majority vote within the Petrograd Soviet. And obviously, they are the sort of movers and shakers who organize um, events on, on these dates of the 24th and 25th. Um, 
So uh, what happens then on the 25th is um, when the smoke clears, um, well, I should back up. As the guns are going off and the Winter Palace is being attacked on the night of the 25th, the Petrograd Soviet is in meeting. It's the Council of Soviets, actually. It meets, it's, it's supposed to meet at 2 p.m. It starts meeting late in the evening. And this is sort of the all-Russian council, all the different Soviets. And Lenin has been adamant that if the insurrection happened before this meets so that once it happens, uh, once it meets, it's a moot point as to whether or not there should be an insurrection. Uh, but the insurrection is still sort of in the last stages. The taking the Winter Palace is happening as they are meeting, and they can actually hear the gunfire. So there's this dramatic uh, debates that go on. Um, uh, and there's a probably majority opinion for peaceful negotiations. There's a, I think there's a tremendous fear uh, among even a large share of the Bolsheviks, but also the Mensheviks, the socialist revolutionaries, um, that this is going to descend into chaos and a bloodbath. Um, and so initially the Bolsheviks say, okay, yeah, we'll vote for resolutions for peace. And then um, uh, 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 the Bolsheviks put forward a, a more you know, strident revolution supporting the insurrection and its outcomes. Uh, those never get voted on because eventually it's announced that the Winter Palace has been taken. It's all over. Pandemonium erupts in the Petrograd Soviet. Lenin gives up, gets up and declares a new Soviet state is being born. Um, and uh, Trotsky, of course, comments that this is, you know, in the history of revolutions, this was the most bloodless revolution that he's seen, and so on. Um, so that's, that takes us up to the 25th of October. Um, and if it all stopped there, who knows? <laughs> um, um, but I, I would make a couple of um, uh, observations about, you know, what, how all this shapes what comes next. The Bolsheviks sort of hijacked the Military Revolutionary Committee. They turned it into an instrument of insurrection when... Um, the other parties were not really, you know, that wasn't what it was intended for. Um, and then in the subsequent debates, um, Trotsky makes his famous speech when, when the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries walk out of the Petrograd Soviet in protest. And Trotsky says, you know, go to where you belong, to the dustbin of history. You're done, you know. Um, and later, some of them would regret having done this because they feel, felt that if they had stayed, they might have been able to shape events. Um, the only party that stayed with the Bolsheviks up until early the following year in 1918 was the left socialist revolutionaries. Um, but then they were out by early 1918. Um, there was also some of the um, Bolsheviks organized something called the Left Workers' Opposition. They were also outed by 1921. And so you ended up with a party dictatorship. Um, and um, this is, I would argue, this is not what people thought they were fighting for. Uh, in the events of uh, 1917, October, um, there was the slogan, all power to the Soviets, to most of the participants meant literally that power, state power was going to devolve to the local level and that local workers' councils would have, you know, sort of prime authority over the state, um, that ordinary working people would have, you know, for the first time in history, you might say, um, you know, you know, the highest power in the land. And this sounded like a really good idea. Uh, how it would work, I don't think anybody had any kind of blueprint for how all this was going to um, function. Um, uh, but um, obviously, uh, for the Bolsheviks, uh, they found themselves um, with a lot of you know, heavy internal opposition, not only from other socialists, but from the Cadet Party, from the conservatives, from the army. Um, and in, um, you know, they, they delay, but eventually make peace with Russia, which is a very popular move. So the three, the other slogan was peace, bread, and land. 
uh, peace. The soldiers wanted peace. They didn't want to keep getting sent to the slaughter in the war. Um, the, the, the workers wanted bread, and the peasants wanted land. And, and so by promising and you know, satisfying those three groups, the Bolsheviks you know, maintained some level of popularity through that period. Um, uh, but then as soon as the Civil War is over, the, the First World War is over, Russia is... Um, the, the former czarist generals organize soldiers and begin recruiting among the peasantry um, for, for recruits. Um, and they are aided by the, you know, the then imperialist powers of, of the UK, uh, France, uh, uh, Japan, also Czechoslovakia, and about 13,000 US soldiers uh, um, enjoying the invasion of Russia during this period to try and, in the words of Winston Churchill, you know, strangle the brave baby in the cradle, the baby of Bolshevism. Uh, and that is the even bigger trauma to Russia's history. Um, figures are, you know, approach 10 million deaths in the Civil War between 1918 and 1921. Um, and that is the period in which, by now, the Bolsheviks or organized a secret police force. It was initially very small, 26 guys. It was called the Cheka. Um, and, of course, its function grows and grows as it becomes seen by the party to be necessary to deal with political opponents with, you know, force and violence. Um, and so you get the Red Terror uh, during the Civil War, and that continues, and the White Terror during the Civil War from the Tsarist generals who were equally um, guilty of many atrocities. Um, so uh, that's, mm -hmm. I don't know if mm -hmm. I should pause. No, it was, <laughs> was amazing. No, thank you. And in, in these last minutes we have, uh, tell us about Lenin. What is, what is the story of Lenin? How, did he, at that moment in 1917, do you think he actually believed that the Bolshevik party would be able to succeed, that he would be the new leader of this land? Well, um, so there was this term, the absolute guarantee. And the absolute guarantee of the Russian Revolution was simultaneous or, or subsequent revolutions across Western Europe. And, and so Lenin defended the idea that, that, that um, he could lead a revolution in Russia with the notion that it would be the spark that would light this global revolution that would spread across Europe and the world. Um, I, I have no doubt that he believed this. Um, and I also have no doubt that he was, you know, severely, you know, confounded and disappointed when that didn't happen. And they knew, they knew this by about 1919 or 21. They knew that this wasn't going to spread, uh, which was a huge problem for this revolution. That was not the plan for Russian revolutionaries or European revolutionaries. There was never this idea of a socialism in a single state. Um, so, um, um, but I think, you know, his behavior is, is you know, like that of a fanatic, um, uh, somebody who you know has a vision that he is um, you know not going to give up on at all costs, uh, and um, and his followers, those who kind of subscribed to him, were sort of overwhelmed by his charisma and his personality, and his opponents were very very profoundly disturbed by where this was going. This was a huge debate in socialists and Marxist circles during this period. Um, you know, how could you have a revolution in backward Russia? Marx said it should happen in a very advanced society. You had to capitalism was only a, Socialism could only come about when capitalism matured to the point where it made sense. How did that make sense in a mostly peasant, backward Russian society? Um, but Russia saying, no, we'll, we'll light the match, we'll get the thing started, and it will spread. Um, uh, so, um, I, I gotta, you know, personally about Lenin is that um, his brother had been involved in these terrorist activities. His older brother, Sasha, uh, had taken part in the attempt on the Tsar's life in uh, 1887 and was executed. Uh, against the pleadings of, of uh, their mother, uh, who tried to reason with the officials. Um, and I think that is an event that shaped his life, too. It, it kind of underscored his, his deep loathing for the czarist regime. Um, 
And, uh, you know, another big debate was uh, the, the use of violence. Um, the Bolsheviks were not, you know, uh, terrorists initially, but they were not above, you know, petty crime to raise uh, money for their, you know, bank robberies and so forth to raise money for their activities. Uh, but they did end up, you know, committing more atrocities than even the, the uh, Narodniks who preceded them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what remains of those early ideals today? Well, um, uh, what I, I taught a class in the spring called Socialism and Capitalism, and um, we spend this period talking about Western Europe and how social democracy as an idea, which is the idea of socialists voting themselves into power, um, how social, the, the ideas of socialism, of you know, public welfare, of uh, health care for all, of education for all, of voting rights for all, and so on, were largely achieved in, in Western Europe under the influence of social democrats. And many of those ideas became ideas that, uh, you know, in the programs themselves were pushed through not by the social democratic parties, but even by liberal and conservative parties. Um, so I think uh, you can argue that many of the goals of socialism have been achieved in, in, in many countries. Um, and communism, because it remained in this, um, you know, very repressive uh, political system uh, until its fall in 1991, um, uh, uh, you know, became this sort of embarrassment uh, for, for people who supported uh, these kind of ideals. Um, there's a lot more to be said there, but one of the things that I want to add is that um, in order to understand the appeal of communism in the early 20th century, even while some of the pogroms, the, the gulags and so forth were going on, you have to understand this is the first country to declare equality for women, and it, and it uh, you know, declared itself the enemy of all empires. And so, you know, when Churchill um, is on a train in Missouri with, uh, with Truman in the 1940s, and he gives his famous Iron Curtain speech, a lot of Americans were like, well, what is he talking about? I mean, he's the leader of this vast empire that's, you know, enslaving millions of people, and he's condemning the Soviet Union, which, you know, pits itself against all of that. So outside of the Soviet Union, um, you know, the first socialist revolution had a, had a great deal of import um, for those reasons. Wow. <laughs> How could we thank you, uh, Michael, for walking <laughs> us through this? My gosh. Um, you've been listening to Michael Smolik uh, from the History Department here at the University of Iowa, and, and I could listen to you honestly for hours, <laughs> but I'm sure, sure you're ready to turn it over to our next group here. Uh, in this next segment, we're going to be talking about social and cultural fallout from the revolution and its aftermath. We're going to be looking at the lives and legacies of Russian writers and musicians. So uh, this is the end of the first segment. Thank you for joining us here at Merge. Stick with us. Just a moment. We'll start part two. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Our topic tonight is the Russian Revolution 100 Years On. And uh, those of you who were with us in the first segment have just heard historian Michael Smolik describe what led to the revolution and lay out some of what followed in the years since. In this segment, we're going to take a look at Russia's cultural elite and see how the revolution and the dramatic changes that followed affected our artists, writers, and musicians. Uh, I'd like to introduce our guests. Just next to me is Anna Barker, who's in the University of Iowa Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures. Thank you for being here, Anna. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Nathan Platt from the University of Iowa School of Music. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd like to start with you, Annie. We're going to talk about literature with you and some of the great writers and what some of these writers went through, their personal evolution and so on. can you help us understand what was in the air, the general feeling in the air for the intellectual elite in the early part of the century? Yes, absolutely. And I would like to go back to something that Michael was talking about, which was the 
terrific wave of terror that um, swept over Russia for about 50 years um, between the 1860s and 1917. Um, and it's fascinating to put the Russian Revolution into context of other revolutionary movements. And yesterday was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, where we went from Luther to revolutionary um, Protestant wars. Um, and the Thirty Years' War, which ended up costing one-third of the population of German-speaking lands. It's the same with the French Revolution. It begins with um, the Enlightenment and the call for liberty, equality, and fraternity. And by about 1815, um, six million Europeans were dead. Um, and also, Mike talked about um, the need for perpetual revolution and just sort of igniting the spark everywhere in Europe. And he was, of course, looking at it from the standpoint of the French Revolution that had to deal with seven coalitions of European powers trying to suppress the, um, the revolutionary movement from spreading in Europe. So the writers of that time period knew what was happening in Europe um, in um, 1789, the first French Revolution, but then also the revolutions of the 1830, 31, um, 1848, 49, and 18. Uh, 60s and 70s, um, Europe was still shaken by revolutions. And these revolutionary ideas were very much, though, uh, paramount to the development of Russian intellectual thought. Um, it's fascinating. I always tell my students about the 40s liberals and 60s radicals, and I always remind them I'm not talking about 20th century US. I'm talking about 19th century Russia. Um, the first novel that really deals with it in a very serious way is Turgenev's Fathers and Sons because um, the Kirsanov brothers there are sort of the 40s liberals who um, are definitely for progressive ideas, but then he introduces a character, Bazarov, who was called uh, by critics the first Bolshevik, who wants so much more. Um, and then Dostoevsky wrote basically all of his mature novels with the knowledge and the understanding that revolution is spreading in Russia. And it terrified him. The possibilities of what revolutionary violence would do terrified Dostoevsky. And that is the basis of all of his late novels, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, Demons, and Brothers Karamazov. Um, actually, one of the characters in The Demons is Pyotr Verkhovensky, and he's based on Nichayev, who was the young man who wrote The Catechism of a Revolutionary, and he called for all-out terror in Russia. So the 50 years saw the assassination of a Russian czar, Alexander II. Um, many attempts, including the one by um, Alexander Ulyanov, Lenin's brother, on Alexander III. About 10,000 people were killed in Russian revolutionary terror. So these writers definitely lived in a, in a period of um, terrorism that was unleashed in Russia on an unprecedented scale. And the people who were targeted were, of course, intellectuals, um, journalists, writers, um, editors, um, professors, um, clergy members, um, government ministers, and all the way to um, the czars. So Alexander II assassinated, Alexander III, several attempts on his life. Um, the writers of the period felt that they are living in the times of great doom. Um, and these were the writers of the Silver Age of Russian poetry, um, who were very, very prominent. And uh, some of them are last known in the United States um, or in the West, um, such as Alexander Bloch, um, Anna Akhmatova, Marina Tsvetaeva, Gumilov, Mandelstam. All of these writers were um, extremely experimental in the early 20th century. Um, 
and um, Nathan is going to talk about how experimental Russian music was, was the Rite of Spring being sort of the epitome of experimental music in um, 1913, but that experimentation was happening in literature too. So someone like Akhmatova wrote very um, doom and gloom poems about living basically in the end of times. Um, so 1917 was a resolution of many years of um, the Russians wondering what is happening to their country and how is this going to be resolved. And they really didn't see any um, happy solutions to the conflict that was tearing Russia in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s of the 19th century. Um, and if I could just skip ahead to go past 1917, some of these writers felt that the revolution resolved that conflict, that something had to happen, that something was the communist revolution. And they were delighted. And these would be um, poets like Sergei Yesenin, um, Mayakovsky, um, Isaac Babel. Um, these were all writers who welcomed the revolution. Even someone like Alexander Bloch, um, who was talking about the doom that is hanging over Russia in his poems like Skifui, um, The Skiffs. He wrote a poem welcoming the 12 apostles of the revolution, read, uh, led by Christ himself. So for them, the, the notion of the apocalypse, um, some of them had very Christian interpretation of it, but some of them just felt that Russia is making a clean cut from the past. It's going to be a socialist revolutionary country, and it requires socialist revolutionary poetry. Um, and the, the sort of the tribune of that revolution was Mayakovsky, who wrote an epic poem about Lenin. Um, it was performed. He got a 20-minute ovation. Um, and then the disillusionment starts setting in very, very early on with all of these writers. Um, even during um, Lenin's time, one more name that I need to mention is Maxim Gorky. Um, who was the founder of socialist, um, socialist realism um, and who was very, very close to all of the revolutionaries. He was a people's poet. He came from the people. Um, but the disillusionment starts early on where he's petitioning Lenin to allow someone like Alexander Bloch, who's very ill in, the in 1920, to leave the country and the release comes too late. He's not allowed to leave the country, and by the time Lenin finally allows him to leave, he's dead. Um, Gumilov, who was Anna Akhmatova, and she's a huge name, of course, in the, in the 20th century Russian world, um, Russian literary world, her husband is arrested for anti-Soviet uh, activity, uh, Nikolai Gumilov, and he's sentenced to death. And of course, Gorky, of course, is petitioning for his release, but it comes too late. Gumilov is executed. And this is during the time of Stalin, uh, not, not yet to the Stalin's purges, to Stalin's purges. Um, so during, during the time of Lenin being in charge, um, writers already being um, rounded up and executed. And um, that uh, makes Gorky so bitter about the revolution. And remember, this is the man who is the founder of socialist realism, that he leaves Russia. He leaves the Soviet Union and ends up living in Italy for years, and has to leave Italy and come back to the Soviet Union with the rise of fascism. So... The life of a Russian writer in the 1920s and 30s was about as complicated as it gets. Um, some of them left for good, like um, Bunin, um, and um, um, he ends up living in Paris. He becomes the first um, um, Russian Nobel Prize recipient for literature, but he never comes back to Russia, just like... Um, um, just like... Um, Rachmaninoff, Rachmaninoff. Right? Um, and some of them stay, some of them survive, like Pasternak and Akhmatova. 
um, some of them are executed um, or die on, on the way to um, labor camps like Mandelstam and, um, um, and Babel. So I'm afraid my, my tale is a very sad one. Um, they knew that um, something was broken in Russia. They knew that there's a terrific doom hanging over them. Um, when the revolution happened, some of them greeted it very happily and died for it. Um, some of them started questioning the revolutionary zeal and um, had a very hard time surviving. Um, someone like Bulgakov and someone like Pasternak actually got personal phone, phone calls from Stalin, and they got the idea that Stalin wants to send them out of the country, and they both wanted to stay because they couldn't imagine a, lot, a life outside of, um, outside of the Russia, outside of the Soviet Union, because they were so deeply um, and intimately connected to the Russian language and to the development of Russian culture. Um, so it's complicated. Yeah. Well, before we turn to Nathan here, I wonder if I could get from you an explanation of the term you've used, socialist realism. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that is. Oh, my goodness. I'm totally the wrong person to, ask, to be asked that question. Um, um, I suppose socialist realism was supposed to depict the condition of the working class in a very, very honest and realistic way. Um, and it was a backlash against actually the this, this Silver Age period where there was so much experimental poetry and they used fancy words like acmeism, symbolism, imagism. Um, all of these poets um, wrote poetry sometimes because the words sounded beautiful. So it was a very much though an arts for arts sake kind of movement. And the socialist realism um, movement was designed to discredit that kind of experimentation with language for the sake of the beauty of language as uh, completely bourgeois and aesthetically rotten. Um, and so depicting the advances of workers and peasants and the happiness um, that comes from this fulfilling um, 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 fulfilling relationship with, um, with the world that is making progress towards a better future became paramount, in the, especially in the late 20s and all through the 1930s. Um, and some of these writers, like Akhmatova, who actually survived World War II, would write poetry that they would memorize and just give certain sections to memorize to their closest friends, um, so that they would not succumb to just totally this totally dehumanizing um, culture where socialist realist books were the only ones who were being published. And um, perhaps later on I can tell a little bit about the writers who did survive the purges in World War II and what happened to them in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll come to, back to you for that. And uh, Nathan, a, a good time to move over into the arena of music. And uh, a couple of names have been mentioned so far, mm -hmm. but tell us about some of the Russian musicians we may know and, sure. and perhaps some we don't know. Yes, yeah, I've been sort of thinking about this particularly in light of Anna's remarks just because uh, some of the musicians I, I would like to talk a little bit about were not nearly as ideologically savvy or driven, um, at least when it came to their work as artists, and yet they had to reckon with this in, in, very, in very sort of serious ways. And so the, the, the musicians that I, I wanted to talk about, uh, Dmitry Tiomkin, Sergei Prokofiev, and Dmitry Shostakovich, and I'll give a, a little bit of a, a thumbnail sketch of each and their sort of um, their life as affected by the revolution, and then perhaps if there's some time to talk about their music as as it as it connects with these issues, I will. 
Um, Dmitry Tiomkin, if he's if he's known at all in this room, is is as a Hollywood film composer who who wrote film scores in the thirty from the thirties through the sixties. Um, but in 1917, he was a student at the Petrograd Conservatory studying to become a concert pianist. So he was in his early 20s, um, and he was not yet recognized as anyone particularly special. In fact, there's some question as to whether or not he was even officially enrolled at the conservatory, whether he was just auditing classes and sort of getting lessons from, from the very um, uh, distinguished faculty when he could. So that meant that his experience... Um, amidst the events that Michael was describing, um, were both astonishing and perhaps not, not terribly exceptional among sort of rank-and-file citizens of the city. Um, he had trouble finding food. He had trouble finding clothes that he could wear in public. Um, when there was a cholera epidemic in early 1918, he was enlisted to go to the apartments of people who had died and, and clean them. Um, and... Uh, when uh, he went to visit somebody who had been uh, imprisoned shortly after um, Lenin had been shot, um, they didn't allow him to leave. They said, we're sorry, we don't, we don't have the right paperwork here that shows that you're a visitor, so we're not going to let you go. And he actually had to sneak out a letter to uh, Alexander Glazunov, who's a great Russian composer, um, who was at that time the, the director of the conservatory, saying, please help me, I'm stuck here. And he was able to pull some strings and, uh, and allow that to happen. And so Tiomkin essentially said, enough is enough, and if I can get out, I'm going to. And his father was at that time working in medicine in Germany, and so he used that as means to get out of the country. He worked as a concert pianist in Western Europe for a few years and made his way to America and ended up in Hollywood in the late 20s where this new career in film composition sort of gradually opened up, and he worked um, in Hollywood uh, for, for decades. Um, what's interesting is his last, the last project he did was actually a, um, a film about the life of Tchaikovsky. He produced the film, and it is a Soviet film. He went back to the Soviet Union to make it and arranged the music of Tchaikovsky for it. Um, but he would, uh, he's best known for writing um, music for westerns like um, High Noon, Red River, uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral. <laughs> and I suppose in a very strange way we might say we would not have that if it weren't for the Russian Revolution and what that, the impact <laughs> that had on his life. Um, the other individual I wanted to talk about, uh, Sergei Prokofiev, was also a student at the Petrograd Conservatory at this time. He was a few years older than uh, Tiomkin, and he was much more, he was already recognized as a, as a, as a composer of some distinction and, a, and, and just a phenomenal concert pianist. And so he had all sorts of special treatment and connections because of that um, because of his um, potential and already sort of burgeoning international fame. Um, he was in Petrograd for the February revolutions, which he writes about in his diaries in a way that is, um, with the benefit of hindsight, um, conspicuously disinterested and almost flippant. It's, it's very striking to read those. Um, he was out of town for, for the October Revolution, and when he realized how badly things were going, he decided he would not return. So he went to another part of uh, Russia to continue working on his compositions and wrote some sort of, again, somewhat flippant letters to uh, colleagues about how he's glad he doesn't have to deal with this, he can just focus on his music. And when it seemed like this was not something that was going to blow over quickly, he 
uh, leaned on uh, several sort of uh, individuals in, in high places, including uh, Gorky, but also, again, Alexander Glazunov, the director of the, of the Petrograd Conservatory, to arrange for his uh, leaving the country. And so he went to the United States via Japan and spent much of the 20s going back and forth between the United States and Western Europe. What's um, particularly interesting about Prokofiev's story is that in the late 20s, he starts making return visits to the Soviet Union and is aggressively courted by the government to come back and make the Soviet Union his home. And Prokofiev, again, was not somebody who was very sort of um, politically uh, clairvoyant um, and uh, saw this as a great opportunity that if a state was going to sort of make sure that all his needs were met so that he could only write music and, pretend and occasionally perform it, that sounded good to him. So in 1936, which is a, an astonishing year given what was happening in, in the Soviet Union in 1936, he, he brought his family uh, back to the Soviet Union. And shortly after that, they took his passport away and he was a permanent resident <laughs> um, until his death, which is the same day as Stalin's. And his career, if we're just looking at his, his rec recognition of his compositions, it was very bumpy in the Soviet Union. Some of his works received the highest awards that the, that the regime could give him. Um, he was also publicly denounced among other um, high uh, distinguished composers in, in a, uh, in, in a uh, decree that was, that was given in 1948. Um, but... Uh, in terms of sort of the the quality of life, it was it was it was it was pretty terrible. Um, his wife, who was foreign born, was um, arrested as a suspected spy after the Second World War and sent to a gulag. Um, again, I mentioned that because he died the same day as Stalin, he did not have the he did not have the pleasure or privilege of really saying what he thought about any of it in a post-Stalin world, and there were no flowers, as they said, for his casket because they had all been bought and purchased for, for Stalin. Um, so those are two very different stories. I don't, do I have a moment oh, for yes, Shostakovich yes, as well? Yes, okay. Mm -hmm. um, Shostakovich is younger. Um, he is only about 11 when the uh, uh, 1917 revolutions are happening, but he is a resident of Petrograd, um, and he is also uh, very precocious. So he enters the conservatory, the same conservatory, at the age of 13 to study piano and composition. Um, so just a couple of years after the revolution. And um, his story is simpler in the fact that he never leaves the Soviet Union. Um, but what, what um, happens with him that is so fascinating for, for both biographical and, and, and uh, musical reasons is he becomes the poster child of the Soviet Union in, in terms of art composition because here is sort of their first, uh, uh, the, uh, a musician who has been sort of trained under the aegis of the Soviet, Soviet Union. His first um, symphony um, is premiered in the mid-1920s. He's 19 years old. It becomes an international sensation. His second symphony is actually um, an, ode, uh, an ode to the 10th anniversary of the 1917 revolution. And so he is tied um, very, very directly to sort of the fate and the future of this new social order. And it is not um, a privilege that he wanted. And so um, 
he, like Prokofiev, is also at times publicly denounced for his work. Um, the most famous example of this happens in the mid-30s. He, ha- he writes a, um, an opera called Lady Macbeth of the Matinsk District, which is an, ad- an operatic adaptation of a Nikolai Levskov novella from the 19th century. It is um, phenomenally pop- popular, um, both in the Soviet Union and in Western Europe, uh, for two years. And then Stalin decides that he would like to see what this opera looks like, given... Shostakovich's preeminence as a Soviet composer and the international interest in this work. And he is appalled by what he hears and he, and he sees. Um, and I could talk about some of why that is, but, but needless to say, a, a very, very famous article is published um, in Pravda uh, days later called Muddle Instead of Music, and it is, a, it is an outright denunciation of the opera and of Shostakovich himself, and essentially says... Um, if he does not start writing music that more appropriately adheres to the ideals of socialist realism, who knows what might happen. And so this is, this is a composer who is at the top of his game and is sort of re- recognized around the world for, for his achievements as an artist being told to essentially stand down by the government. And so and this, the, a similar instance happens in 1948 as well. So like Prokofiev, he's both... He is both um, uh, trumpeted and, and applauded by, by uh, the Soviet government. He is also sort of brought low at sort of strategic times to show that even our greatest artists are not um, need to sort of uh, kowtow to the, to, 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 the, to, to the powers that be. And in, in contrast to Prokofiev, he does outlive Stalin by, by um, a couple of decades. He dies in the mid-'70s, and that uh, gives him some time to... Um, well, write other pieces that perhaps explore um, emotional and sonic states that he might not have been able to do under the regime, Um, and also to talk a little bit about what he was thinking and feeling um, during that time. And of course, you know, the effects of memory, the effects of somebody being cognizant of their legacy and perhaps having to maybe even in some ways redeem it, um, is plays into that, but I think one of the things that makes Shostakovich just so um, astonishing, really by any standard, is that you know he 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 reckoned he he did not leave he did not leave the Soviet Union. He reckoned with it. Um, he did not have to sort of sell out his artistic or individual ideals in order to make that happen. And he walked a very fine line mm-hmm. for for decades in order to make that happen. And I think that's part of the reason why his life is 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 really, really um, fascinating. And then knowing that and sort of hearing his music, pieces that had to be written to sort of connect with um, uh, groups of opposing uh, ideological viewpoints, um, that's not easy to do. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's maybe easier to do in music than, say, something like literature, but it's still very, very difficult. And he, he, he managed that for a long time. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, well, I want to come back to Annie and ask you to speak just a little bit about Solzhenitsyn. Right. So I, I talked about some of the writers who um, either died of starvation, um, were executed, or committed suicide under very suspicious circumstances. And these would be Babel, Mandelstam, Bloch, Svetaeva, um, Mayakovsky, Yesenian. These are the glory of Russian literature of that time period. Um, Anna Akhmatova survived, and um, she had husbands who were executed, husbands who were sent to the gulag. Her son was sent to the gulag so that she would write nice poetry about Stalin uh, while she is writing in her memory Requiem, which is her poem about the horrors of 20th century Russia. Um, Stalin called her half harlot, half nun, 
and he kind of kept her alive. Um, it was his perverse pleasure to keep her alive. It's the same was um, was Pasternak. Um, they considered him to be a holy fool, and they kept him alive. And of course, Pasternak gets the Nobel Prize in Literature for um, Dr. Zhivago, which was an event in Western literary life. Um, then after that, so this is the 50s, 60s, um, Sholohov gets the Nobel Prize in Literature, and he's a very establishment writer, and this was during the uh, Khrushchev period, where the United States wanted to have better relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, and then, of course, the next Nobel is a shocker. It's uh, Solzhenitsyn. It is such a shock to the Soviet system that he is kicked out of the Soviet Union. Um, he goes to the West, and... Um, the West has a hard time dealing with him because he is not willing to be used as a propaganda piece against the Soviet Union. Um, he comes to live here in the United States. He lives in total self-isolation in Vermont for 17 years. Um, when the Soviet Union collapses, um, he goes back to Russia in the 90s. He's very critical of what, is ha of what is happening in Russia in the 1990s, which was truly a catastrophic period in Russian history. Um, from about 1991 to 2000. And then he comes to terms with the sum total of the Russian century. Um, and this is a man who fought in World War II, uh, was arrested at the end of World War II for questioning Soviet authorities, goes to the Gulag for eight years, writes about it. Um, Khrushchev allows the publication of um, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is astonishing. Uh, when the Khrushchev uh, thaw is over, he cannot publish in the Soviet Union anymore, so his um, Gulag Archipelago is published much later. His works are not going to be known to Russian readers till the eight, late 1980s. Um, and then he dies in 2008. He, he is his funeral, and he's given the full Russian Orthodox funeral, and is buried in a Russian monastery. So if we talk about Solzhenitsyn, we talk about the sum total of 20th century Russian experience, from the revolutionary zeal to the horrors of World War II, to Stalinist repressions, to the period in the Gulag, Nobel Prize in literature for being a dissident, um, exile in the West, unwillingness to cooperate uh, with the West against, um, against what he feels is his homeland, um, the Russia that he loves so much, and the Russian language. And then coming back um, was the collapse of the Soviet Union and um, just sort of folding into the life of new Russia um, and being buried as an Orthodox Christian in a Russian monastery in 2008. Um, I, I just feel that Solzhenitsyn's life, Solzhenitsyn's life just incorporates every aspect of what it meant to be Russian in the 20th century. Wow. So thank you so much. I wish we had more time to talk about these things. Really so interesting. Nathan Platt and Anna Barker, uh, thank you. Uh, and <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, in just a moment, we're going to start the third and final uh, portion of the program where we're going to look at Russia today. Russia as an actor on the world stage since about World War II. World Canvas programming is available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and thank you very much for being here tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part three of our program on the Russian Revolution 100 years on. Our guests in this segment will bring us up to the present as we examine Russia on the world stage. Next to me is Bill Reisinger from the University of Iowa Department of Political Science. Thank you for being here, Bill. Very happy to. Mm -hmm. And next to him is Michaela Henneke Moore from the University of Iowa Department of History. Thank you for joining us, Michaela. Gladly. Mm -hmm. So, Bill, I want to start with you. You're a political scientist, a deep knowledge of Russia and the former Soviet Union. How do you assess the impact of the Russian Revolution a century ago on, on where we are today? Yeah, you know, um, the, the, uh, there's sort, sort of an irony, it seems to me, in that uh, there are uh, tremendous impacts on the history of the 20th century and into the 21st uh, from that started in October of 1917. And of course, as we heard in the first uh, portion of the show or that began even much earlier than that, but, but 1917's impact, uh, one of the things I would mention would be the fact that uh, party authoritarian regimes became a phenomenon in world affairs and a way for um, power to be managed in uh, many countries around the world. Um, you know, you think about the communist regimes that came to power modeled in many ways on the Soviet Communist Party and the way that they ran the Soviet Union. Um, and so Cuba, China, um, North Korea, et cetera, et cetera, but not just communist ones. Uh, this kind of party-based form of authoritarianism uh, is something that's available uh, to be used by regimes that don't have communist goals. So uh, it really did expand, I guess, the palette of authoritarianism uh, in, in our time, and, and that's something that I, I do think comes from the Soviet period. Uh, there's also the impact that uh, the living under communist rule had for the people and the societies uh, where that happened and uh, for many decades. And we uh, are seeing now that there's still uh, carryover, there's still legacy from life under communism uh, in the societies that are even now post-communist that still can be tracked and traced. Uh, people's attitudes, the way that uh, the uh, societies function, the, the weak institutions, a greater prevalence uh, for corruption, for example, and uh, just uh, a, a much weaker attachment to uh, market-based capitalism and to uh, democracy and the symbols of democracy and things like that. So you see these kind of carryovers uh, even 100 years on. Mm -hmm. Why is it that so many of these um, communist uh, um, societies that you mentioned earlier, why is it that a controlled economy, as they were trying to do it, really didn't produce the results they would have hoped for? Yeah, isn't it um, sort of ironic? And and the, um, you know, so 100 years on, uh, a whole bunch of the goals that um, the people making the revolution in 1917 had have been discredited or, or proven to be unworkable. And, and so central planning as a way of running a national economy really doesn't have any proponents left except, I mean, possibly North Korea and, and, and uh, a few others, but in that particular form. The idea that there will be a um, move into communism at some point in the future, communism being a utopian future where, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, right, this idea that you won't have to have power and politics and, and repression and other things, you can have a nice orderly human society, but yet one in which there's abundance and all, right? So that image has more or less been discredited. It's, it's not a moving force in the world in the way it was 100 years ago. 
In terms of why that is, I think a lot of it is the fact that um, the ideals that of the most of the people who made the revolution uh, were betrayed uh, by the way that power played out in the in the Soviet Union. Uh, certainly under Stalin, but uh, I think in the first segment we heard Michael talk about uh, the ways in which it became a dictatorship of the party uh, rather than really being the kind of government that was um, was hoped for the local, more decentralized form of rule. And so, you know, a lot of the worst catastrophes of the 20th century, the uh, state organized mass murders in, on the scale of millions and millions and millions, uh, it wasn't communist regimes that began those in the century, and it wasn't, they weren't the only ones who did it, but on the kind of leaderboard of places where you had these terrible, terrible um, situations, uh, the communist countries are right up at the top. Yeah. Um, what is the sentiment now in um, in Russia about their their pathway out of uh, the um, central control period and into a sort of more capitalist market system within uh, Russia? What, how, how do citizens feel about this now? They, I think they have. Um, there are many ways in which Russians, and this is similar to people in, in other post-communist countries, in which they have uh, attitudes that are carryovers from the Soviet time. Um, but uh, there, it's a commingling of um, that carryover with the process of transition, as you suggested. Mm-hmm. And, and as we heard in the second segment, um, the first decade, uh, roughly, of that transition was was brutally hard on the people in Russia. Uh, massive hyperinflation, unemployment, uh, disintegration of many kinds of social norms and, and institutions. So um, just a very difficult time. So they carry that with them. On the other hand, uh, what uh, has has sort of brought them together as the economy rebounded uh, was a sense of their country as being um, a, a continuation of the long-term Russian state project and, and a great deal of patriotism and pride. And, of course, we see that in uh, the reaction that people have had to the annexation of Crimea and other actions by uh, the Russian government in foreign policy, uh, that uh, support for the leadership goes up. Uh, There's a rally around the flag effect that has made Putin, uh, President Putin, very popular. And that provides for the Russians a kind of cohesion on the whole. There's 80 percent support for Putin's leadership. Uh, even though the Russian population does not agree on everything, they are not um, happy with uh, their system and their leaders, and they are happy to go out on the street and protest when uh, things go bad. But the strength in the very top leader, the support for the very top leadership, has maintained itself despite that. And I think uh, part of that is wanting to see themselves as part of the great Russian tradition mm-hmm. that, in some ways, had to make it through the Soviet period. Yeah. Yeah, well, Michaela, let's go to you next and, and talk a little bit about U.S.-Soviet relations yes. and the perceptions in the United States of uh, Russia or the Soviet Union. Yes, that story um, also begins, of course, in, uh, uh, in 1917, uh, several months before the Bolshevist Revolution. The United States joins the Great War, joins the war uh, in Europe, and thus, in some ways, I was just thinking about that, we have that scenario that the... French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville had predicted in the 1830s that, you know, in the future there'll be two great powers, um, Russia from now on in the form of the Soviet Union and uh, and the United States. And I think that the U.S. intervention in the Great War really does position it after the Spanish-American War, after this high point of 
uh, of imperialism to emerge, you know, as one of the great powers and later the superpower in the in the 20th century. Um, as Mike mentioned, also towards the end um, of the war, the U.S. joins with other Western powers in a military intervention in the in the Civil War uh, in uh, in Russia. And uh, at the very end of the war, something else happens in the U.S., which foreshadows, I think, the then more important um, story of the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, which is we have our first Red Scare uh, in this country. And just to sort of to clarify that and to, to remind everyone, um, there are connections between the first and the Red Scare after World War I and World War II, but there are also important distinctions. I would say the most important um, difference um, or distinction in uh, at the end of World War I is that political leaders in this country, in the U.S., so I'll just name the president, Woodrow Wilson, but also our most famous Iowan, Herbert Hoover, who is... Um, uh, very important throughout the 1920s, the State uh, Secretary of Commerce, almost throughout the 1920s, and then, of course, eventually president. Um, they are both, um, you know, radically and principled anti-communist and anti-Bolshevist. Neither one of them nor anyone else detects any national security threat, any danger that emanates from Russia, Soviet Union at that point. So the, the response in 1917, 19, and thereafter um, is not one of fear, as we associate with the, with the Second Red Scare and with the Cold War, uh, but is one of contempt. And uh, I think one should add of, of hope. Hoover, for example, takes a very principled anti-interventionist stand, both in that context and later again in the, in the late 1940s. He's really in favor of clearly not recognizing the Bolshevist regime, but pulling the U.S. troops out. And instead, um, sort of ignoring the Bolshevik regime and sending aid and food uh, which, of course, does after World War I to other parts of Europe, uh, in order to win them over, sort of, uh, you know, winning the hearts and minds. And, and let the, the Bolshevist regime, which cannot uh, survive, he thinks, because that economy is not, those economic ideas not functionable. The regime is too repressive. Let it just sort of collapse under its own, under its own weight. Um, one parallel that I would point to between the two Red Scares uh, is, and I only saw that actually in sort of freshing up my memory a little bit in preparation for this evening, I found this uh, amazing quote from 1919 from President Wilson. Um, I think Americans in general were, in the context of that anti-communist fear, completely focused, as they would be decades later again, on internal subversive uh, enemies. Uh, and the problem with the first Red Scare, the same as later, um, is that people were unjustly targeted as, as communist subversive, people who were not Bolshevist, although those people were also there, but it was really against unions, it was against recent immigrants, it was against German Americans, you know, anyone else was associated and this linkage was made. Um, so that's the similarity, but what I found striking in this one quote that I saw uh, by President Wilson is that he publicly predicted that the agents of Bolshevism in this country would be the returning Negroes coming home from the war. And that, of course, is one of these you know, scandalous features that we are all aware of in the second Red Scare in the 1940s, that many groups get targeted, among others, you know, 
people of different sexual orientation in the State Department, which leads to a terrible brain drain there, a kind of almost internal purge in the State Department, um, but also the association of communism and Bolshevism after World War II with civil rights activism. Uh, when, I, when I saw that quote, I actually thought, you know, one has to maybe interpret this on a deeper level that Wilson, the southern racist that he was, as well as later um, in, the, in the second Red Scare, people understood that this was a vulnerable point uh, in, in the American democracy, you know, the lack of civil rights, um, and, and that they thought this vulnerable point, we're going to call them Bolshevist or communist first, you know. Um, yeah, maybe I'll... Yeah, well, you know, people my age and, and younger are aware of this, certainly we think of Vietnam and the notion that, um, you know, communism in China would be spread all throughout Asia and elsewhere. I mean, this was right. this was a palpable reality for many of us who lived through the, you know, 60s, 70s and, and thereafter. And, and, I mean, now nobody says the word communism. It's, it's kind of not in anybody's current vocabulary other than, you know, you talk about North Korea, but that sort of seems to stand altogether on its own. This is a very interesting shift to me, you know, to, to live through a period where that is really the main, um, it, it seemed to me anyway, one of the, the very most prominent national security fears or, you know, our values and our um, the form of our society being threatened by this thing out there that was going to overtake us if we weren't careful. And we don't speak in those terms anymore. Tell us how, how we moved through that. Well, I, I mean, the, the Soviet Union and, and its uh, allied countries uh, stopped being able to produce new economic growth, new kinds of economic innovation. They, um, uh, they had the period in the 50s, they were the first uh, country to put a satellite in orbit yeah. and then a f- human being in uh, Earth orbit. And they, you know, there was a lot of reason uh, to fear that in a competition they were going to be you know, very stiff opponent, opponents. By the 1970s and 80s, it was clear that economically they didn't have the wherewithal to keep up with uh, with the West, and um, you know then they didn't. It turns out that the system didn't have the wherewithal to deal with conflicts among ethnic groups and other kinds of cultural pluralism uh, that uh, proved to be you know one of the most important factors in the end of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the fact is, when you educate a population and provide upward mobility and things, uh, people. People want to have greater political voice, and uh, that also creates pressure from below that the communist system in the Soviet Union was very poor at managing. Mm-hmm. And so I think you look at history. Now, the, um, uh, in many ways, uh, what had been a feared Soviet model is no longer talked about, no longer treated seriously, etc. cetera. Uh, but there is a sense in which many in the West uh, went too far and declared the end of history and that all uh, Western ideas uh, had won the ideological battle and there was going to be no more sort of uh, contending on these things. And that doesn't look so good 25 years on as it did in the late 80s and early 90s. So, um, you know, there, you don't want to go too far and, and say um, the West totally won or something. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was clear that the, the bulk of the problem was coming from the systems themselves not working very well. Mm-hmm. I think I would uh, maybe add to that that even though we may not be using that term quite so much and it's not no longer you know that recognizable sort of enemy 
the uh, the costs and the consequences of um, the Cold War, I think, shaped this country deeply uh, in different ways, both in terms of its sort of geopolitical uh, position. It's really during the Cold War that our um, uh, that our foreign policy becomes a kind of militarized globalism, and we are undoubtedly an empire, you know, in that regard and in that context. Um, I would also say that um, the the Cold War um, is obviously a global phenomenon, and there are clear, in addition to you know who wins the Cold War in the end, there I think there are people who benefit from that global Cold War, um, and there are people who suffer proportionally much more. Um, and I would say that Europe, um, for example, especially Western Europe, including the my home country where I was born, West Germany, um, should be counted among the beneficiaries also of American Cold War, you know, foreign policy, sort of, you know, builds up an umbrella under which, you know, the Europeans, the West Europeans in general can... Um, um, uh, move forward their project of European unification and so on, whereas the Cold War turns hot in other places uh, around the world and on other continents, uh, in, in Asia in particular, but also in Africa. We have wars of proxy, you know, in these other places, and it's those societies, I think, that are carrying, that are carrying the burden. I would add um, on the part of the, uh, of the United States that the U.S., also pays in this war, as the Soviet Union does, in terms of um, blood and treasure. But also, I think both sides, actually, different as they are, democracy and dictatorship, um, pay in terms of their domestic um, um, culture, political culture. So if I just could you know, briefly come back to, that, to, to the beginning, the origins of the, of the Cold War... Um, which I think are more properly located in that period and that sort of transformative and, and anxious and insecure period between the end of World War II and, um, and maybe 1950, when the Cold War turns hot with, um, uh, with Korea. I think if we look at the discourse in this country, but also at the, at the political elites, at foreign policymakers, there are very different kinds of anti-communism anti-communisms in this country that you can differentiate. There is Hoover, I already mentioned him, a kind of very principled, anti-Bolshevist, anti-communist, but non-interventionist that survives in the Republican Party into the post-World War II period with the sort of Robert Taft wing. Um, we are confronting them, but not militarily. Um, what really comes sort of to the fore and to power with Truman and then is carried on with, uh, with Eisenhower is a more militant and interventionist, you know, anti-communism. And then um, a third category I think that is important is people who were interested in anti-communism almost as solely a domestic ideology with which to push back uh, against certain groups, you know, within, uh, within this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I would uh, uh, say that I I really uh, think that's right, and I guess if you know, as I look forward in time, you know, it's sort of a hundred years from now, if the United States has any chance to manage the power transition from China, India, maybe other countries um, in over the next century, it seems to me it's going to be because there is uh, an international order that's based on legal principles and international organization and um, 
and sort of clear rules of the road. And um, every time the United States uh, backs a uh, dictator against, uh, who, against its democratic principles, every time the United States uh, sort of militarizes conflicts, it's undercutting the principles that uh, could be helpful in that process. So there's, there are real costs to be paid and, and that have been paid prior to this for sure. So here we are at a time, I remember a few years ago when Mitt Romney was in one of the debates and he remarked that our perhaps our greatest um, concern on the international stage was Russia and just kind of laughed out of the room. I, I remember the commentary yeah. after that remark. And, and then, of course, in this most recent election, we have a, a candidate who seems to um, have all kinds of interest in befriending Russia or whatever. We can all um, take take that sentence wherever we want to take it. But um, what does Russia want now? You, you have better insight into these things than most of us do. What do you think? What is this game? Well, I, you know, Russia wants to, uh, to be a, a great power. Um, so it believes it is and must be seen as and must be treated as a great power just on the face of things. Russia believes that its size and its population and its traditions and other things make it one of the world's great powers. Uh, which means that they believe they ought to have um, a particular uh, power and particular influence in their neighborhood, in, in the area, particularly of the former Soviet Union and, and uh, the former Soviet bloc. Uh, they want to have enough power uh, to be able to project selectively into other regions of the world, uh, as they're doing now with Syria, primarily because that is a way to be taken seriously as somebody who needs to be um, consulted with on the world stage. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would like uh, to, as sort of part of that uh, image of themselves, uh, they would like to uh, reduce the um, coherence and effectiveness of uh, democratic ideals and uh, um, the uh, sort of language that is used by the Western powers uh, in the world order. And mm -hmm. uh, so I think they're, they're not the only um, leadership at present of, of major countries that are trying to, I think, create an impression that uh, so-called democracy and other things is not what it's cracked up to mm -hmm. be. But that is part of the project, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And what do you think? Um, so I have two thoughts about this. One is that I think the story of Putin uh, and Putin's Russia begins um, in 1989, 1990, which was such a particularly happy moment because it marks the end of the Cold War, but also for you know my home country, it's German unification. Um, and I was very interested in reading recently, you know, scholars pouring over the until recently secret documents, do documents of those highest-ranking negotiations between uh, Bush 41 cabinet, especially the president himself, uh, as well as uh, Secretary of State Baker uh, and Gorbachev and Shevardnadze and, uh, and, of course, Helmut Kohl, the German chancellor then, uh, and also these same scholars talking to the participants, you know, who would still be, would still be around. And um, Bill can help me out with this, but the, the story that um, emerges is, you know, these were maybe among the most important diplomatic international relations negotiations in the 20th century. Um, and the Americans had, I mean, all sides had, but the Americans had sort of a list of, you know, maximum, you know, best possible outcome, you know, for us. Um, and the result of the negotiations is... Um, a promise that Gorbachev will allow Germany to reunify, which was huge, uh, and also be a 
be a member, remain a member, or become unified Germany, would become a member of NATO. And he would do that, the Soviet Union would do that, um, in, uh, in exchange for financial aid um, from the West German government, you know, which was a small, those millions were a small price uh, to pay for this. Uh, and this outcome of the negotiations pretty much um, is the very top of what the Americans were expecting. Later in his memoirs, Secretary of State Baker reflects on this. Uh, I think in the typical manner of a, of a seasoned diplomat and says, the only thing we have to worry about is that sometimes uh, in these you know, extravagant cases of diplomatic success, you already have the seed of future you know, problems. Mm. And another commentator on that same scene would be Putin, who was present in 89 in East Germany as a young KGB uh, officers and who about 10 years later in the late 1990s, you know, comments on that mm-hmm. uh, and, and talks about how devastated and demoralized he was, let us say, as a, as a Russian patriot. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of a revisionist urge, I think, starts at that very moment because it's not clear where NATO expansion would stop. So if a united Germany can be part of NATO, there is no promise that the Western powers give where this is going to stop. Um, Putin says at that moment it's clear that Russia has been sort of pushed out of Europe uh, and has been pushed back into a periphery, and it will not be there sort of silently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Michaela Henneke-Moore. Really, really so interesting. And Bill Reisinger, I'm very grateful you would be here and, and uh, share your insights. And um, to everybody listening, uh, All of you here in the room with us, thank you for coming. I hope you've enjoyed the evening as much as I have. If you'd like to hear this program or any other World Canvas programs, they're all available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And our next program is coming up soon. It's on December 7th here in this room at 5.30. Our guests are part of the Art and the Afterlife Project at the University of Iowa Museum of Art. And we'll have faculty at the School of Art and Art History as well on that program. Um, For all of us and for international programs, thank you very much and good night.